Hello, everyone. I wish you a very warm welcome back to our podcast. And yeah, another week flew by, if you'd ask me. And a lot of things happened in Ukraine that we are going to talk about today. Of course, the Russian military buildup in the east of Ukraine and the rising tensions, therefore, will be a central topic of today's episode. But of course, we also have other topics that happened this week. Well, I'm Rika, and this is a podcast of Promote Ukraine, and this series is called Ukraine Up to Date, and we bring out this podcast every week, most of the time on Mondays, where we put together the most interesting, relevant, and important topics and events about Ukraine and talk a little bit about it. So in case you want to stay on top of things that are happening in and around Ukraine, don't worry, we keep you up to date. And without further ado, let's start with this week's hot topics. The dangerous situation near the eastern borders of Ukraine and from the side of Crimea eased somewhat after President Biden's phone call to Vladimir Putin. Russian troops remain concentrated and, according to Ukrainian intelligence data, their size will even increase by the end of April. But the likelihood of their use in large-scale actions against Ukraine has decreased significantly, even though it was not very high to begin with. Trying to understand why Putin suddenly moved troops, there are at least three important factors to keep in mind. So first, the Kremlin failed to force President Zelensky to implement the Minsk agreements on its own terms, which Russia hoped for after the change in Ukrainian leadership and the proclaimed course towards peace. Second, last year and the beginning of this current year were marked by a sharp, even under Russian standards, toughening of the regime due to the procedures for consolidating the eternal status of the Russian president amid decline in support and a sudden surge of protest in the allied Belarus, which only yesterday was a model of stability and total loyalty to Lukashenko. Those factors certainly did not contribute to the peace-loving and liberalizing policies of the Kremlin. And third, perhaps most important aspect, is the new White House administration that is overtly hostile towards Putin. Sanctions over all things, which Trump apologized, were guaranteed to Russia, as was the resumption of intensive US relations with NATO partners. The Russian leadership faced the problem of how to react to the new American policy while indicating a strong position. Obviously, they decided to press on the most vulnerable point, well, the Ukrainian one. It is very difficult to describe Russia's actions as successful. Politicians, the military and diplomats at the highest levels in the EU, NATO, G7 and individual states quickly living up, reassuring Ukraine of their support and calling on the Russian leadership to end this dangerous game. At the same time, consultations were held between the allies and Ukraine on the necessary assistance. The West, and not only the West, if we recall the position of Turkey, sided with Ukraine. Biden's phone calls, first to Zelensky and later to Putin, crowned these urgent mobilization actions. After that, the president of Ukraine had talks with Macron and Merkel, but the aggravation started to abate after the direct involvement of the US president in the process. If the Kremlin's goal was to force Biden to be the first to make contact, Putin received the most expensive call ever, given the cost of large-scale movements of military units and equipment. Indeed, Washington offered Putin a meeting, and in the two-day pause that separated the offer from the announcement of a new wave of sanctions, many made triumphant statements that Biden allegedly backed down and Putin was stronger and stuff like that. But the sanctions package turned out to be so serious and so painful 
that talks about a weak Biden quickly stopped. Restrictions were imposed on Russian organizations and citizens over Russia's interference in the 2020 presidential election, the cyber attack on US government agency, and an agreement with the Taliban to attack US troops. Six technology companies involved in the cyber attacks, 16 individuals and as many legal entities involved in the disinformation campaign, as well as organizations and individuals involved in the construction of the Crimean bridge are now under sanctions. Moreover, the sanctions will also apply to family members of persons subjected to sanctions, including adult children. Ten Russian diplomats will be expelled from the United States as well. But most importantly, American investors are prohibited from working with Russian government securities that will be issued after the 14th of June. This practically kills the possibility for the Russian government to borrow money in the foreign market in the future. According to experts, this is the most powerful blow, the force of which will be felt over time. Commenting on the move, Biden said modestly that he had chosen the softest version of sanctions so far because he wanted to stabilize and normalize relations with Russia. But if Russia does not change its policy, he is ready to take further action, as he said. In the summer, the president of the United States is ready to hold a summit with Putin in one of the European countries. Well, why not? By then, by the way, the second round of sanctions over Axel Navalny's poisoning will be launched. To evade them, Russia must commit to stopping the use of chemical weapons and allow inspections at its production sites. It is hard to imagine that Russia will accede to these conditions, though. Thus, the Kremlin upped its stakes in a major game with the West by threatening Ukraine. However, it only convinced everyone yet again that this is a constant source of international danger and forced opponents to unite and strengthen collective security measures. Ukraine has become a part of the security system one way or another, and its role will only grow. In this sense, Russia helps to accelerate these processes. No wonder that the NATO perspective is now much more often mentioned in Ukraine. The threat to Ukraine from Russia under the current regime will continuously increase and decrease, but it will never disappear being a constant factor. So far, the recent escalation has allegedly been abated by the involvement of the most powerful force, the United States. But it is important to move gradually from sporadic putting out fires which Russia has ignited or threatens to ignite, to establishing conditions when there will be no fires or no fire threats. This is a common cause of all those who held out their hands to Ukraine during, a, during the current crisis, and much has still to be done. Civil society representatives of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions prepared a statement warning about a dangerous scenario for Ukraine. So, to quote, in the light of concentration of Russian troops along Ukraine's borders and escalation of the Russian-Ukrainian military conflict in Donbas, we see several ominous trends which could lead to internal destabilization in Ukraine and the transformation of the interstate conflict in the East into a civil conflict. The question is possible, attempts by Germany and France to persuade Ukraine's leadership to reconcile with the Kremlin by signing and trying to implement key clusters for the implementation of the Minsk agreements, which are humiliating for Ukraine and contrary to its legislation and the constitution. The starting point for talks about key clusters was an article in the Russian newspaper Kommersant published in late March. 
So citing their own sources, the newspaper journalists reported that advisors to the president of France and the chancellor of Germany had prepared a new project for the implementation of the Minsk agreements and presented it to the Ukrainian and Russian parties in November last year. According to Kommersant, there are three versions of the so-called clusters, the Ukrainian, the Russian and the French-German one. The letter contains 11 clusters, so for example, security, politics, economics, and humanitarian issues, which provide for the implementation of Steinmeier's formula, preservation of uh, people's militia units, enshrined of a special status of certain areas of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions in the constitution of Ukraine, conduct of legal elections, procedure for establishing control over border, etc., etc. Russian and Ukrainian versions are quite contradictory. Moscow seeks to define the conflict as internal and to force Kyiv to start a direct dialogue with the self-proclaimed republics. Such a scenario remains unacceptable for Ukraine. The division into clusters involves the disjunction and implementation of the Minsk agreements in order to fulfill those points in which consensus can be reached. The fact that this information leaked to the Russian media indicates that Moscow itself was interested in depressuring the closed dialogue on the settlement of the situation in Donbass. The escalation that began shortly after the article about the clusters may indicate that Moscow is thus emphasizing the lack of alternatives to its position in the negotiations. The Cautions are more restrained compared to American ones. Calls of European leaders for de-escalation in Donbass uh, may be indirect evidence that these clusters do exist and are seen as a tool for resolving the conflict. However, even if uh, those so-called clusters are published officially as a roadmap, it will be difficult to implement them. And suffice it to recall the case of Steinmeier's formula, which many in Ukraine perceived as an overture to surrender. It seems that perception of key clusters for the implementation of the Minsk agreements is a similar case. According to the aforementioned statement by civil society representatives, to quote, we warned the political leadership of Ukraine, as well as representatives of France and Germany, that no agreements based on the principles of pondering to the Russian aggressor, granting the occupation administration subjectively and arbitrary interpreting security priority over any issues of political nature will be condemned by civil society and will provoke effective resistance offered by us and all patriots in ukraine so another search for a compromise with the separatists on russian terms could turn into a political crisis inside the country A group of Russian Special Forces soldiers led by Colonel Igor Girkin made on the 13th of April 2014, which is, by the way, uh, Palm Sunday, a harbinger of war. Today, however, blood continues to be shed and Putin and his entourage threaten to spill even more blood by deploying troops on the Ukrainian border, largest ever seen since World War II. Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary of Ukraine to the Republic of Austria, Alexander Sherba, wrote this in an article for the Die Presse media outlet. So as the diplomat emphasizes, to quote, the whole world is wondering whether Putin will attack openly and in full force this time. I hope this is not the case. I hope he understands that he will face anything but blitzkrieg in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Timofey Sergeyev, a political strategist close to the Kremlin, published an article about the collective guilt of the Ukrainian people towards Russia 
and called for punitive actions against the Ukrainian population in military tribunals after the occupation starts. The demons of this war do not sleep, they want another feast. And yeah, as he recalls, Gherkin and his militants attacked a group of Ukrainian officers in the outskirts of the Ukrainian city of Slavansk in 2014, killing uh, Bilichenko, who became the first victim of hostilities in Donbass. To quote again, Within hours, the whole of Ukraine listened to the conversation between Gherkin and his curator from Moscow, Alexander Borodai, intercepted by the security service of Ukraine. Both of them did not conceal their enthusiasm. Gherkin reported that he had minced someone outstanding, and he, he said minced as if Belyshenko was a piece of meat and not a man. In response, Borodai greeted him, saying that Gherkin had celebrated the holiday well. And then he added, do you have someone who speaks with a Ukrainian accent? Let this person give a comment to journalists and demand the federalization of Ukraine. And so go Girkin and Borodai, two Russian FSB officers, Moscow residents, unable to even imitate the Ukrainian accent, became the founders of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic. Borodai became prime minister, and Girkin joined a little later as a defense minister. Thus, the war began, which some people still call civil. So in uh, the opinion of Sherba, uh, that demonic conversation between Borodai and Girkin already revealed the most important features of this war, which is deception, cruelty, and meanness. The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Dmitry Kuleba, met with U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, during a working visit to Brussels on the 13th of April. The chiefs of Ukrainian and U.S. diplomacy discussed in detail all aspects of Russia's escalation ongoing in the temporarily occupied territories of Ukraine, along the Ukrainian-Russian border and in the information space. To quote Kuleba, Russia is pulling troops not just to the border with Ukraine, but in fact to the border of the democratic world. There is no democracy beyond it, thousands of kilometers to the north and east. In fact, Ukraine has been defending itself and the democratic world from the aggression of authoritarian Russia for more than seven years already. And yeah, the Secretary of State assured that the United States continued to stand firm on the side of Ukraine in its oppression to Russian aggression and the struggle to restore its sovereignty and territorial integrity. The parties agreed on the need to make joint efforts to deter Moscow from further escalation and any military adventures and discussed a number of practical steps in this area. The officials paid special attention to efficient ways to deepen military political cooperation and expand the US-Ukraine strategic partnership. And Kuleba and Blinken underscored that Moscow would immediately stop provocations, reduce tensions on the border and reaffirm its commitment to the ceasefire in eastern Ukraine. The US Secretary of State also praised Ukraine's wisdom and prudence in the current situation. The diplomats discussed ways to more actively involve the United States in the process of political and diplomatic settlement of the Russian-Ukrainian armed conflict. And also, Kuleba and Blinken touched upon further internal transformations of Ukraine, in particular those necessary for joining NATO. The uh, president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has been blamed for insufficient support for Ukraine after rejecting President Volodymyr Zelensky's invitation to visit Kyiv. So, according to Politico, Zelensky invited von der Leyen to Ukraine 
to take part in the celebration of the 30th anniversary of the country's independence, as well as the inaugural summit of the Crimean platform. In response, though, the president of Ukraine received a refusal signed by her cabinet chief, Björn Zaybert, not by the European Commission president herself, as required by protocol. The publication emphasizes that the decision caused a stir among EU diplomats. According to them, rejecting such an invitation could raise doubts about von der Leyen's commitment to demonstrating support for Ukraine at a time when Russia is amassing troops on its western borders and in Crimea. It is noted that the reason for rejecting the invitation was an overly busy agenda of the President of the European Commission. However, this moment raised questions as the events in Kiev are set for the 23rd and 24th of August, a time when Brussels and the EU institutions are all but shuttered for summer holidays. The Commission's chief spokesman, Eric Mama, declined to comment on the letter. Political journalists believe that von der Leyen's refusal highlights the frayed relations and differing approaches to foreign policy between the European Commission president and the European Council president, Charles Michel. Last month, while visiting the line of contact in Donbass, he promised to make every effort to take part in the events in Ukraine scheduled for August. Some EU officials said von der Leyen's decisions not to make a visit to Ukraine complicated efforts to schedule an EU-Ukraine Council meeting, which was expected to be held during the independence celebration. Journalists of the Dutch TV channel NOS published new recordings of telephone conversations between people accused of downing Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 in the sky over Donbass in 2014. The talks were intercepted by Ukrainian special services. And mostly they concern Sergei Dubinsky, who in the summer of 2014 was the deputy defense minister of the so-called DPR, and uh, Girkin and former lieutenant colonel of the Russian airborne troops, Oleg Pulatov. Journalists note that the military and political influence of the Russian Federation on militants had increased in early July. On the evening of the 4th of July, an identified man called Dupinsky and warned that someone from Moscow had arrived in the territories not controlled by the Ukrainian government on that day and that the political leadership of the pseudo-republics could be replaced. In the same conversation, Dubinsky makes it clear that military and strategic decisions are also adopted in Moscow. In a conversation with Girkin, he says that Moscow did not allow militants to leave Slavyansk. Later, the decision to withdraw was still made. On one of the recordings, Pulatov and Binsky say that militants need good air defense, not tanks. And to quote, if they are delivered at night, you will get uh, BUKM right away. Um, and we have no other recourse but to hope for BUK, Dubinsky tells Pulatov during the conversation. Later, he calls Pulatov again and says, quote, Mol, which is, I think, militant Leonid Karchenko, is going to drag BUKM to you now. It should be replaced near Pervomaisk. On the 17th of July, Dubinsky was told that militants had allegedly shot down a Ukrainian fighter, but it was later revealed that a passenger jet had fallen to the ground. On a recording, Pulatov states that a Ukrainian military aircraft allegedly shot down the Boeing and then militants shot down the Ukrainian fighter. 
Later, this version was repeatedly voiced by Russian propagandists, and then it formed the basis of the position of the Russian Ministry of Defense. However, the Dutch Safety Board claims that there were no other aircraft near flight MH17. After the information about the downing of the passenger jet was confirmed, Dubinsky ordered Karchenko to urgently take the BUK missile system away to Russia. And uh, yeah, as a reminder, the Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 en route uh, from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur was shot down over the Donetsk region on the 17th of July 2014. And unfortunately, all 298 people on board died. The cause of the accident was investigated by the Joint Investigation Team, the GIT, which consists of representatives of Ukraine, the Netherlands, Belgium, Australia and Malaysia. In September 2016, GIT published the findings confirming that the jet was shot down by a missile fired from the BUK system and later announced that it belonged to the 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade of the Russian Armed Forces stationed in Kursk. On the 19th of May 2019, GIT officially named four suspects believed to be involved in the downing of flight MH17. The Russians Igor Girkin, Sergei Dubinsky, Oleg Pulatov, and Ukrainian Leonid Karchenko. And we do have that video on our website on promoteukraine.org. And uh, I will also put a link for you in the description. On Friday, the 16th of April, President of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky and the First Lady Olena Zelenska arrived in France on a working visit. According to the president's press service, Zelensky will meet with President of France Emmanuel Macron in Paris. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel is also expected to join them via video conferencing. And this information was also confirmed by the German government spokesperson Stefan Seibert. On the eve of the visit, Zelensky gave an interview to Le Figaro saying he hopes that the French president will unblock the Normandy format. So to quote Zelensky, it seems to me that the Normandy format was in a coma. Then we managed to meet at the end of 2019. And indeed, I saw that a heart of this format, if to stick to the allegory, is beating and a pulse is felt. But now we see that there, the format has health problems because one organ does not want to work. We need support here, primarily from Mr. Macron. And then let's hope there will be a desire from Russia. Because now, no matter what Russia or its representatives in the trilateral contact group in Minsk say, I know for sure that they block everything. And he also called for Ukraine's accession to the European Union and NATO. And to quote him again, Europe's security depends on Ukraine's security. Our country has suffered many casualties. We cannot remain in the waiting room of the EU and NATO indefinitely. Ukraine has long deserved to leave it. It is time to intensify work to invite us to join the EU and NATO. And according to him, Emmanuel Macron, as well as Angela Merkel and the European Council President, Charles Michel, have helped Ukraine a lot, especially by imposing sanctions against Russia. So Russia announced the closure of part of the Black Sea areas towards the Gerge Strait for warships and state vessels of other countries from next week to October 2021 under the pretext of military exercises. To uh, read a statement by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, 
Such actions uh, of the Russian Federation are another attempt in violation of the norms and principles of international law to usurp the sovereign rights of Ukraine as a coastal state because Ukraine has a right to regulate navigation in these areas of the Black Sea. The ministry also considers the step a gross violation of the right to freedom of navigation guaranteed by the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. According to the convention, the Russian Federation must not obstruct or impede transit through the international strait towards the ports in the Sea of Azov. And to quote the diplomats again, against the background of the continuing buildup of its military presence along the border with Ukraine on land, Russia has intensified its escalation at sea. It redeploys warships from the Caspian Sea and strengthens military potential in the Azov Black Sea region, and despite the lack of legal grounds, decided to close this area to warships of other countries, including Ukraine. The behavior of the Russian side testifies to lack of any intention on its part to abandon the aggression against Ukraine using military and hybrid methods. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine strongly condemns the actions of the Russian Federation and demands immediate cancellation of the decision on illegal closure of certain water areas of the Black Sea. And to quote the Foreign Ministry again, we call on international partners to step up political and diplomatic pressure on the aggressor state to make it cancel the decision on closure of water areas and stop the escalation in the Azov Black Sea region. Officers of the Russian Federal Security Service, or in short the FSB, detained Ukrainian consul Alexander Sasanyuk in St. Petersburg. He is accused of, uh, I quote, obtaining confidential information from the database of law enforcement agencies and FSB. This was reported by the FSB Public Relations Center, noting that the Ukrainian diplomat met with a Russian citizen. Both were detained during the transmission of classified information. To quote the Russians again, this activity is incompatible with the status of a diplomatic mission representative and applies a clear hostility towards the Russian Federation, also adding that they plan to take measures in accordance with international law in relation to the Ukrainian diplomat. Meanwhile, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine expressed its indignation over the incident. Ministry spokesperson Oleg Nikolenko said in a comment to BBC Ukraine that the actions by Russian security forces were another provocation against the background of Russia's destabilizing behavior. And the diplomat also added that the Ukrainian consul was detained for only a few hours. To quote Nikolenko, he currently stays in a Ukrainian diplomatic mission. The circumstances of the detention are being clarified. According to him, the Ukrainian side will decide how to react to this provocation, taking into account the existing practice in the near future. The Czech Republic made a decision to expel 18 diplomats of the Russian embassy in Prague, who were identified as Russian intelligence officers. The decision was announced by Prime Minister Andrei Babish, as well as Minister of the Interior and Acting Minister of Foreign Affairs, Jan Hamacek. According to Hamacek, Russian ambassador Zmievsky was informed about the decision of the Czech side. Now, 18 employees of the Russian diplomatic mission have to leave the country within 48 hours. Babish also said that the Czech security forces believed that members of the Russian secret services had been involved in the explosion of ammunition depots in uh, Bretice. 
I'm sorry for my pronunciation. Police placed two men with Russian passports who were in Prague and Moravia in October 2014 on the wanted list. It is noteworthy that these men, Chipiga and Mishkin, I mean, are also suspected of poisoning Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Great Britain. They were identified as officers of Russia's main intelligence directorate. According to police, the wanted persons used at least two identity cards, Russian passports in the name of Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Bashirov, and later a passport of citizen of Moldova in the name of Nikolai Pop and a passport of a citizen of Tajikistan, Ruslan Tabarov. The head of the Czech government stressed that the explosion at the ammunition depots caused enormous material damage and affected the lives of many locals. But the main thing is that two Czech citizens were killed in the explosion. According to Czech media reports, the explosion of the post at Vrbetice complex, organized by Russian agents, was most likely carried out to disrupt the supply of weapons, including those to Ukraine. According to journalists, the posts and weapons did not belong to the Czech Ministry of Defense. They were used by a commercial company that prepared ammunition for export to Bulgaria. The Erojlas media outlet found out that the recipient was the company of Bulgarian arms dealer Emilian Gebrev, who was poisoned with a Novichok nerve agent twice in 2015. Bellingcat later proved that this was done by the same unit that attacked the Skripals. According to media reports, Gebrev was one of the suppliers of military goods to the Ministry of Internal Affairs of Ukraine and the National Guard, including during the active hostilities in Donbass. So, and that was it with this week's podcast. As usual, make sure to share your thoughts with us. And of course, we want to hear your feedback so we can keep improving for you. And of course, if you want to have more information on Ukraine-EU-Russia relations and read articles, you can visit promoteukraine.org if you don't want to wait for the next week's podcast episode. And also, if you haven't done so yet, of course, follow us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so on. And again, our name is everywhere, Promote Ukraine. For now, I wish you a wonderful start into the week, and we'll be back next week with some fresh and new information.